Okay, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our evening session at Belly Up. Thanks to Monsanto for sponsoring this and to all of you for coming. Um, this is a session on social media and journalism. Is social media transforming journalism? And I'm Charlie Firestone with the Aspen Institute Communications and Society Program, which is one of 24 policy programs at the Aspen Institute. We look at the societal impact of communications and information technology and have a number of policy uh, projects in that area. I like to think of social media in the context of the history of communications, went from one-to-one -one communication where you had interpersonal, person-to-person speaking, letters, eventually telegraph, telephone, and email. And then we had one-to-many, um, starting with really smoke signals, but books. Then <laughs> um, we had books, really, from the printing press and in the area of mass uh, communication. You had newspapers, radio, television, cable, and satellite. But in this digital area, in this digital era, we have a new phenomenon, which is many-to-many. Um, we have this ability for individuals to reach many other individuals and have this uh, empowerment to virtually anybody. Almost any, anybody can blog, can get on Facebook or uh, Twitter or any other of, of these very interesting new digital communications. So it allows for personal expression and empowerment. And it also develops communities of interest uh, and also refines the ref reference system that we each have uh, in looking at what, other, what our friends think and what our colleagues think. So the point is to take this uh, illustrious panel and take a look at how this new medium will impact uh, the practice of journalism, uh, first of all in the United States, and maybe we'll get into uh, beyond the United States. So for our panel, we have David Kirkpatrick at my far right, who for many years was a senior editor with Fortune magazine. Um, he was uh, covered the internet and technology and also uh, managed the brainstorm conferences that they did all around the world. He's now with Techonomy, but uh, the real reason he's here tonight is he's the author of the book, The Facebook Effect, and a very interesting new book that's out doing very well. Um, then we have Arianna Huffington, who is a columnist, author of 12 books, another one on the way. Uh, but uh, again, we all know, founder and editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post, which is one of the most interesting phenomena in media uh, in our era because of uh, the phenomenal success that it's had since its founding. We have Vivian Schiller, who's the CEO of National Public Radio, formerly the head of NewYorkTimes.com. She ran the Discovery Times Channel, a co-op between uh, Discovery Channel and New York Times, and was head of uh, documentaries at uh, CNN, where she, met, where she won many Peabody's and Emmys. Uh, and Strauss Zelnick, who's head of and founder of Zelnick Media, uh, which is investing financially in many media companies throughout the, uh, throughout the world, really. He's the former CEO of 20th Century Fox and BMG Entertainment, which had many record labels. And he's currently chair of Take-Two Interactive Software Systems and ITN Networks. So uh, to begin, 
I'm going to uh, actually turn it to, uh, to David. And, uh, you know, you've written about the Facebook effect. So what is the Facebook effect on journalism? Well, it's, it's a fascinating question. I think it's, it's a hard question to answer authoritatively because it's a moment of such rapid change that we're in right now. But I could think of a number of ways in which Facebook, per se, and social media more generally are having a significant impact or be becoming a major part of the forces that are changing journalism. I mean, the most obvious one is simply that Facebook is now the single biggest place on the Internet where people are spending their time. Whereas, in other words, they're not spending their time at CNN.com or they are spending a lot of time at the Huffington Post, thankfully for Ariana. But um, in general, the time is going to these new services. But within those services, a lot of the things that people are doing is consuming media. So, you know, there's, there's not a simple uh, answer. For example, I, I, any of you who heard the thing I talked about this morning will know that I said the statistic then, too, because I think it's such a stunning statistic. But um, 46 years of YouTube videos are consumed on Facebook every day. That's what happens when you have 500 million users. <laughs> but it just goes to show that this is where media and journalism and entertainment is being consumed. So that's a significant factor. I mean, there's, there's sort of sacred and profane effects. A minor one is, as a journalist myself, the existence of Facebook is a huge resource. You know, you can find sources that you could never have located before trivially easily, and that has been a huge asset to me. Uh, I've gotten interviews in half an hour that might have taken me a week to find before. Right. Um, so there's, those are just some of the now, initial thoughts. Uh, I looked up some statistics on the Internet, so they must be true. Um, and it says 44% of Americans get news from email or updates to social media networks. Are you finding that that's the, I mean, is that uh, well, sound, mean, you sound? You yourself used the word empowerment in your intro, and that's, that's how I describe Facebook, a platform for empowerment. And Facebook is the ultimate example of this moment we're living in where the individual has the ability to be a broadcaster. So that's changing journalism, that's changing media, because no longer do we necessarily only listen to the broadcasts of Walter Cronkite and the top-down authorities that constituted the media of the past, even though I was one of them and I'm happy to have been in that era. That era is more or less ending. And now we listen to the broadcasts of our friends as much or more. Now, if media is lucky, if journalism is well articulated and, and giving messages that people enjoy passing around, much of what I see from my friends will be a journalistic product that someone else has produced, and that's how those YouTube videos get on there. So, Ariana, your Huffington Post is, uh, has more hits in a week than the Wall Street Journal or USA Today or the Washington Post, and it's nearing the New York Times. So it's a tremendously impactful uh, combination of both journalism and blogging and social media. So how have you incorporated social media into this new emerging uh, news operation? Well, first of all, by recognizing that uh, our readers don't want just to consume news, but they want to be part of the story. They want to share news. They want to develop the story. So that engagement is the way that um, we've ended up having, say, three million comments last month. And that's the way that we've integrated Facebook, 
um, and Twitter into our content. So that, for example, you can um, go on one of our stories and immediately if you've participated in the social news that we have through Facebook, your friends will see what you are reading. Your friends will see what you are commenting on. Now, if you want to see a particularly naughty story and you don't want your friends to know, you can put it on stealth mode. You may want your friends to think that you only read about the deficit and you never read about Lindsay Lohan. So <laughs> <laughs> if, if you go to check a story on Lindsay Lohan, you put it on stealth mode. But my point is that so immediately your community can know what you're interested in, what you're commenting on, and, and um, they can uh, comment back to you. And you have your own community within the larger Huffington Post community. But beyond that, what interests me so much is the fact that in the journalistic undertaking, since after all our, our topic is the, the impact of social media on journalism, uh, we need to tell the story of our times. And I think what people are longing for is stories and narrative to go beyond data. And so much of traditional journalism focuses on data. So we, for example, launched a project called um, Bearing Witness 2.0. We've assigned two reporters now whose job is purely to put flesh and blood on the data. And uh, also, we have a citizen journalism editor who constantly encourages our readers to tell us stories about what's happening around the country. So, okay, everybody may know that 26 million people are unemployed or underemployed or too discouraged to look for work, but when you hear the story of Brenda Carter, who after 11 years in the same job at the same company, one day was called into her boss's office and was fired and told to clear her office immediately where she had accumulated all her pots and plants and and pictures of her family and has not been able to get another job in the last two years, suddenly what's happening around the country comes to life for you. And that's something which, with the help of social media, can actually spread and become a major way um, through which we can connect with each other and move to solutions. And Do you find that the, uh, you know, the citizen journalism where you really don't know the people so, you know, very much. It's not like a uh, reporter that you've hired and you know, you know, their history. Do you find that um, the credibility is uh, ever, que you know, questioned? Do you find uh, that they are credible? And how do you check that? Well, that's where editors come in. And that's why I don't think that there are two separate worlds of, say, mainstream media and new media. I think there is a convergence. Uh, we are moving towards the hybrid future. I think editors will become more and more important as gatekeepers, as curators. Um, trust, as uh, Craig Newmark said, is the new black. And <laughs> as, uh, as people are losing trust in major institutions, um, if you are not trusted as a media operation, uh, it's over. So our editors are critical in, in shepherding citizen journalists who don't just receive submissions and post them without going through them. Uh, but the difference it makes to actually hear the raw voices of people and to see the raw video is, is extraordinary. So some more of these definitive stats. Uh, 89% of journalists source stories from blogs, according to 
uh, Cision Media Survey. 65% uh, of journalists use Facebook and LinkedIn for research, and 61% rely on Wikipedia. Now, I'm not sure that these are uh, NPR. The second one, I think, is right. The other two don't sound right to me. Okay. But you are the gold standard in journalism, and the question okay. is, how have you adapted social media to this very excellent journalistic organization that you uh, run? Social media has been an extraordinary set of, of tools and, and, and ways for us to engage with our audience. I mean, the, the thing is, um, our, our listeners to NPR and our, and our users to our website feel there's something about public radio, there's something about the intimacy of radio that makes people feel a very personal connection to what we do. And so that personal connection is a perfect segue to social media. For many of our uh, people in our audience, NPR is really a lifestyle. It's not just a source for news. They define themselves by being NPR listeners. Countless personal ads are, you know, say, you know, NPR listeners seeking same. It's just really extraordinary. It's somehow <laughs> become this, you know, emblem of who you are. And so that is perfect for social media. So it has been an extraordinary tool for us to publish, to distribute, and as David and, and Ariana both alluded to, to, to for news gathering. And, you know, there is, we have extraordinarily brilliant people in our audience. And now they have an opportunity uh, to be heard by us. I mean, there have always been, you know, in legacy media, letters to the editor, of course, you know, have existed as long as newspapers have existed. And, and we had our own equivalent in NPR. But now we have a comment section where we find people that are much more expert than us on subjects are giving us information that we need. Or we're using Twitter on a story like the Haiti earthquake to identify characters to be able to um, tell us stories that we can then interview for radio and interview for our other programs. Or we can use crowdsourcing as we did around the midterm elections where, where 7,000 people um, tweeted information about their voting experience so that we could get a record of of you know what kind of troubles people were having with voting in their various districts, and we'll do the same thing for the elections. It is fantastic. So uh, something called network journalism. Has, uh, th there's a lot of different names out there, but the idea of the journalists managing uh, people out there, citizen journalists doing Twitter. Uh, do you find that this has just sort of become just sort of a, a general network of? journalism where your journalist is sort of at the center of it? A absolutely. It is, you know, if there was a time maybe a few years ago where we would employ social media for special projects, it's now just become the day-to-day -day fabric of what all of our journalists do. All of our journalists are on Facebook. We have uh, hundreds of Twitter feeds, both official and from, and from our reporters, and we use it strategically to reach sources, to distribute our news. We're we're very popular among, you know, being uh, as a news source for being retweeted. And it's also, you know, something that we may want to elaborate on a little bit later. You know, there is this concept of citizen journalists, of course, which is well known, but we have really embraced the concept of citizen coders, which are all of the incredible software developers and coders out there who are using our material and helping us find different ways to get our content published and, and in different ways. So Strauss, you're in the financial, you're in the business of finding investments in the entertainment business predominantly, but generally in the in the media business. And we've seen the uh, business of journalism go through a tremendous uh, 
uh, turmoil. Uh, the cost of uh, the, the, what they call CPMs, the cost per thousand of uh, buying readers in online uh, media is one-tenth of what they are in print. What do journalistic organizations have to do to survive in this new uh, social media environment? I sort of feel like you, you saved the really dull business question for last. It's like, yeah, I know we've got to throw the business guy a question. He doesn't know anything about the news business, but he's got a calculator in his pocket, which is essentially true. Um, you know, the, 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 there's been an enormous sea change in the economics related to news in general, much of it unrelated to social media, most of it unrelated to social media, and I could talk about it at length. I mean, look, you know, I've been building a, a relatively large collection of media and entertainment assets and so on, and guess what I don't own? Any news assets, right? Um, and why do I not? And, w and with all due respect to everyone on this panel, um, you know, we're still talking about entities that don't make a whole lot of money compared to, say, what CNN used to make, CNN still makes, the New York Times used to make, no longer makes, the Wall Street Journal used to make when Mr. Murdoch bought it for a very big multiple, what it no longer makes. And th those trends are driven by any number of things, including the shift of classified advertising to Craigslist, which was, you know, one of the huge sea changes in the economics of the, of the, um, of the newspaper business that isn't really, you know, we wouldn't think of in terms of the discussion that was just going on. And I could bore you with any number of other topics, including the fact that the entire metrics related to paying for news and advertising against news got all screwed up in the last 50 years. Um, one of the things that it isn't about is readership. Readership's been declining inexorably since before I was born. So it's really not about news readership. <clears throat> it is about the fact that originally the news business started off with people paying for what they wanted to read, and then advertisers came along. And eventually the tail started wagging the dog, and advertising began to be the whole story, and people started printing a whole bunch of copies that people didn't pay for to get them into their hands so they could sell advertising. And eventually you had an upside-down situation where news was being oversold from an advertising point of view. And eventually advertisers got the memo. And they typically get the memo in an economic downturn. They really got the memo in 2008. And we saw it in, in relation to news gathering. To relate it to what's going on here, one of the big challenges for any organization, um, unless it's a charitable organization, even then there may be a challenge, is you know, ultimately you need a business model. Ultimately you need a business model or you can't get funded. So um, NPR does have a business model because its business model is related to doing stuff that commercial enterprises can't always do, won't always do, or don't always want to do, and there are, you know, there are people who want to support that. I know because I was on the board of uh, one of the NPR stations for a long time, a big believer in the mission. Um, however, for Ariana's company, it's got to make money, you know, at, and uh, it's got to grow and it's got to compete, and otherwise eventually, eventually it becomes irrelevant. Um, and that's a challenge for some new businesses that are journalistic. A business, great little business called Business Insider, right? Terrific business, doing a great job. Many of anyone who reads their news on Yahoo, I do. How many of you read your news on Yahoo ever? I'm the only one. Um, but you'll you you'll be watching Business Insider. It's pretty good stuff, but it's still a real small business. It's not making a lot of money. So you know, Jeff Zucker's point. You know, we're seeing the transformation of this is a paraphrase of of analog dollars to digital dimes, and your point about CPMs is, is, a, is a key point. You know, more related to this conference where the, the Twitter folks are here, they have this enormous enterprise from a user point of view, and from the point of view of my enterprise, really, really, really a small enterprise, because my enterprise is measured in dollars and cents. Well, you are also, your enterprises also do involve the next generation. You have gaming companies, you're right, in I, the I entertainment, Right, I do stuff music. people pay for. 
they paid you for know. and they spent. I mean, no, I'm serious. You know, I, I sell video games, right? I'm, and, I, and they pay for them, right? They we pay do. for them and they so. spend their time on them. Yeah. And so let me just reverse the whole question, which is, is how does journalism get into that uh, realm? Well, journalism is there. And I think that's one of the things that people have, have failed to realize. You know, during the economic downturn, you could read in publications, online or in print, about what appeared to be the demise of all media businesses. And you saw the value of Time Warner stock go from uh, EBITDA multiple, operating profit multiple of 16 and a half in 2001 to a, a bottom of 4.5 to today a rebound to about 6.5. Huge destruction of value. No one ever talks about one of the biggest media enterprises that's in the business of delivering news that's been coining money throughout, including throughout the, uh, the big crash of 08, although they probably had a, a bleak moment in 08. Anyone want to venture what it is? Bloomberg. Bloomberg's a huge, multi-billion dollar business. Our, our New York mayor, of whom I'm very fond, is an exceedingly wealthy guy. Man gives away a couple hundred million bucks a year, right? So clearly he's making more than that. And he's, he is not having any trouble at all. Why? Because he puts out a must-have product for which people will pay. And to me, the paradigm it's of not news... It's necessarily journalistic. It's information. Oh, I think he'd argue it's journalism. And I it think has elements yeah, of journalism on it, but it's primarily data. I, and I think that's fair, right? But Norm Perlstein would say a great deal of it is journalism. And, you know, they We're have, trying to make more of it journalism. Yeah. Um, sorry? They're trying to make more yeah, of it journalism sure. right now. But Fortune but magazine, you understand. They can afford to subsidize the journalism with the data And, David, business. your point is well taken. And I guess, you know, I'm bleeding journalism over into information and data. I think that's right. It's a very fair point. But, but the point I am making is if you give people stuff they want to have, they will pay for it and you can charge for it. And I think the biggest challenge for news going forward and the thing I spent a lot of time thinking about is must-have stuff will get paid for. Stuff that isn't must-have or is fodder is never going to get paid for. But and stuff in between is in a no-man's land. But must-have for who? We're, you know, must-have for our democracy? We need well, that's, beat journalism. We need I think investigative that's, I journalism. I think, frankly... I think that's right, but I don't. You ask me an economic question. No, no, I know, but I'm. Well, just, I mean, I live I'm, in I'm moving on. Can I jump in? You, I'm the capitalist ringer even here. On, okay, let's be capitalistic about this. Uh, the fact is that that public radio content is free. If somebody either can't pay or, for whatever reason, unknown to us, chooses not to pay, we will not block our content. And yet, uh, we earn three hundred million dollars a year across public radio in membership. People that say. This is important to me. I am part of this. I'm going to give you $5, $10, $50, $500. So it's actually not a bad model. I mean, it's actually a very successful model that we think with social media, to bring it back to the subject, can become even more successful. It's possible to have, I mean, this is, this is a, a model that is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily compute in the commercial world because you're not literally charging, you're not blocking access for someone until they pay. But yet it works. And in the commercial world, it works with advertising because advertising is not just CPMs, as you know very well. I mean, our um, greatest, uh, most profitable advertising, and HuffPost is now profitable, comes from sponsorships, comes from um, social media. Advertisers love social media. And as long as there is a clear Chinese wall between uh, journalistic content and advertising, as long as it's transparent, what is advertising as opposed to what is journalism, there is no problem with that. What? And on top of it, I just, what, I, what I'd like to do is to sort of step back for a minute and look at what's happening in the country and in the world and what is the, the 
the function of social media and journalism in that context, because there's something pretty amazing happening right now. There are huge shifts happening. And if we look at the zeitgeist, if we look at what's happening with the decline of the middle class, with the fact that millions of people in this country are reevaluating what their lives are about, what they used to value may not be what they value now. And so we're now seeing self-expression for millions of people becoming the new entertainment. And many people who don't get that, many people in legacy media are still sitting there wondering, why are people updating Wikipedia entries for free? Why are people updating their Facebook accounts for free? Why are people blogging on the Huffington Post for free? They can't get it because they don't understand that the same people who maybe five years ago were watching bad television for seven hours on their couches for free, <laughs> and, nobody ever, and, never, and nobody ever asked, why are people watching bad television for seven hours for free, now are actually engaged in their times. And that is their new entertainment, and it's amazing, and it's changing everything. And we can't just apply the same models to um, the new world. So I want to bring up an, a different topic and just... Wait, I, just I, I want to riff on that. I want to go to two points. First of all, you're completely right on both points. What's really interesting is you know, people are still watching as much television as they ever watched. All of this is additive. No it's, no, it's just, no, it's the same people. It's average. the same people who are fake. No, it is. It is indeed the same people. Average household viewing continues to increase, but we're parallel processing. We're now consuming more media than ever before. So it is interesting. I think your point's very well taken. You know, some of my smartest young friends who are in new media in New York get their news entirely from Twitter. And it's really, really, these are not dumb people. These are really smart people, and they're watching trending topics, and they're getting their news. You, this is not an economic point. This is a social point. The second point, to make social I, occasionally, <laughs> maybe not here. And the second point that I, I think you're exactly right, you know, McClune, Marshall McClune was a, a famed scholar in the 60s who said famously, and tongue-in-cheek, I might add, the medium is the message, which meant, meant nothing, near as I can tell. It meant the message was television was the box, right? Or the newspaper, the message was in the print. And today... Um, uh, today, I think the point is that uh, the audience is the medium. The audience is becoming the medium. But I still I'm think, to, to a point, that, to the point, to the point of view, <laughs> you go ahead. But credit me. The point of about course. the point of what everyone here does, though, is you spend your lives professionally editing, aggregating, and editing. And I do think that's awfully relevant. And I don't think that goes away. Everything you all talked about was about aggregating and editing. And the truth is, in the absence of aggregating and editing, it's just noise. But, but it's also wait. original reporting. You see, I don't think... I think this distinction between aggregators and uh, original journalists is, is, is changing dramatically. It's not there anymore. At Half Post, we have more and more original reporters. We lost the Huffington Post Investigative Fund, which is a not-for-profit that applies that employs journalists to do in-depth investigations. So increasingly, these lines are being blurred. Well, I just, you know, it was interesting, the people in the audience who were shouting out, thank you, because the implication is that there are a lot of people who think, you know, the sources of information available to us are radically diminishing in quality. And I think that's sort of an issue for us to discuss. I happen not to agree with that. Even though I really worry about all the journalists who are out of work, and there are an amazing number of them, and many former colleagues at Fortune and everywhere across media. There are people, good people, who have trouble paying their bills. However, 
In terms of information availability, I think we are living in a moment of fantastic abundance. And, and I, I, I think it's a problem to figure out how to juxtapose those two facts. But I just want to note the world we came from. We came from a world that was extraordinarily top-down. And I want to just briefly tell what happened in my very first journalism job, which was effectively to be a, you know, indentured servant at Time Magazine when I was still starting out. And I used to go to the uh, New York Bureau meetings of Time Magazine uh, every Monday morning. This is probably about 1983. And I was a really junior person. And they'd have these story meetings, right? And, and all this correspondence of Time Magazine in New York used to be a really big bureau in New York at the time. There were like 12 of them. They would come in with their story ideas on Monday morning. And what was the nature of the story idea that the Time Magazine correspondents brought in on Monday morning? Clips from the New York Times. Every single one of them would bring in clips from yeah. the New York Times. The New York Times was the disseminator of the agenda for the media. And to some extent, it still is. I love the New York Times. But there was a period not long ago when if it wasn't in the New York Times, it was not on CBS. It was not in, you know, in the Los Angeles Times, etc., etc., especially on international matters. So that was not a moment of information abundance, in my opinion. I think it is far healthier that we now live in a world where you know, great journalistic organizations like both NPR and the HuffPost are both employing serious professional journalists, and nobody does it better in the old-school way than NPR. I mean, you have the gold standard for high-quality journalism. At this point, there's hardly anybody else who even does it anymore, which is why people want to be NPR people. Yes. But you're still relying on social media to get even better sources. But David, You don't require the New York Times to tell you what to write about. But David, in most cities, the newspaper is the source. It sets the agenda for the news in that city. Generally, that's, that's happened over time. And, you know, for the radio, for the television. Now, NPR's, you know, nationally is different, but even uh, locally, the, this is... Uh, and the newspapers are dec declining in the pages and the coverage and the coverage of state bureaus and a lot of the beat journalism and a lot of what they call the verticals, the specific areas, education. So... Uh, you know, clearly what you're describing is the transition to a new world. But we're, I think one of the problems is we're faced this, in this period of five to ten years of just transition. But there's an awful lot of really great information and stories that need to be told that don't require a professional journalist to tell it. That some, yeah. that just yeah. somebody in, attending a school board meeting who happens to be a parent can put something on Facebook or tweet it, and it can have a big impact in a positive way. And also there is amazing work being done online, real investigative work at the local level, like the Voices of San Diego, like Mean Post. The Knight Foundation is doing an incredible job funding a, a lot of these efforts, which are breaking major investigative stories at the local level. So th there is such an abundance of creativity uh, that we can no longer just bemoan the old days. Because right. remember, just, just as a quick reminder, the old days missed two of the biggest stories of our time. You know, there was great journalism being done in the lead-up to the war in Iraq, but most journalists missed the fact that there were no WMD. And most journalists missed the fact that there was a financial meltdown impending. So it would, we, it's not just about saving journalism, it's about making journalism better. And I think all this upheaval and all this great creativity is going to make it better. Reminds me of the scene in Atlantic City, the movie Atlantic City, where they're going and looking at uh, around the city of Atlantic City and the 
Burt Lancaster saying, but you should have seen it in the old days, you should have seen it in the old days, and then they look out at the Atlantic Ocean, he says, oh, is that the Atlantic Ocean? And Burt Lancaster says, yeah, but you should have seen it in the old days. <laughs> um, maybe the old days uh, uh, aren't what we thought it was. Um, so uh, I think we can turn it to, since we're talking about social media, we should be involving the audience, which is the message. But only through Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if, I, if we were allowed to have our uh, Blackberries on, we, would, we could do that. Uh, but I can't see. So if they could turn on the house lights, I could, uh, there's somebody maybe. And, and what we would like is we will send around a, a mic and please say who you are and uh, be brief in terms of asking a question or making a statement. That's okay. So I think there's somebody here, but I can't see where the mic is. Okay, great. Hello. Hi. My name is Danielle Parker, and I own my own publicity company, but I'm also a former reporter who is going back into the business. The uh, One of the points that I'd like to make about social media, I think it is amazing. I've used Facebook in a very, very valuable way to get an audience of my own and so forth. But at the same time, I will say that you know, being a member of the Society of Professional Journalists, having a code of ethics, where does that fit into this picture? Because when you have people that are blogging, these are not people who know about this oath that we take as journalists to be objective, to do certain things. And we, you know, I also find one problem with the, with the internet also, which is that it's swaying public opinion with possibly inaccurate facts. So I think that those are issues that really should be, you know, I'd like to see addressed. So at lunch, uh, <laughs> about this at lunch yeah. uh, Vivian uh, spoke on news uh, literacy. So maybe you could yeah. briefly uh, right. tackle that. And maybe, Ariana, you would uh, address yeah. the point about uh, journalistic ethics of the new emerging... But Journalists. Well, I mean, first, I'd like to say that there's nothing that, you know, I think Ariana made a very good point before, which is that we should not, there's this sort of false dichotomy between the mainstream media and digital and social media as if one is good and one is untrustworthy and evil. That's nonsense. Blogging, for example, uh, tweeting, all of the tools of social media, Facebook, can be wonderful, incredible, are, in fact, for NPR and many other organizations, fantastic vehicles for journalism that if you look at the journalist sort of so-called code of ethics are sourced, you know, ver verified, um, transparent, balanced, all of those things. You can do those things. In it. There's nothing inherent about a blog or tweet that makes it biased. The key is to understand who it is that you're reading, what it is you're consuming, who you're exchanging with, what is their agenda, and to understand what the source of the material is. But the fact is that journalism is extremely compatible with all of the tools of social media. So let's not sort of, you know, uh, cast all of social media into this area of, you know, this kind of dark, insidious, agenda-driven uh, mode. Certainly there is that, um, agenda-driven, not necessarily dark. There's nothing wrong with opinion. Just know the difference between opinion and fact-based journalism. And also the difference between opinion based on fact an opinion based on fantasy. I mean, for me, that's the main difference. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with opinion if it's, if it's factual. And my, my greatest dream is that somebody will invent instant fact-checking. Not after the fact, but like, as somebody's talking, there will be a bubble yeah, yeah. that goes up. Yeah. It's not, you know, like, and it would be a completely non-partisan tool. So, for example, if Sarah Palin goes on about death panels, there would be a little bubble that comes up 
that actually shows you the provision in the bill where there are no death panels. And when Barack Obama says um, that uh, he never campaigned for the public option, there will be a little bubble that shows his campaign website about the public option. So that's really what is missing, that instant fact-checking. And here there is incredible work being done by not-for-profits also, like the Sunlight Foundation. Um, and PolitiFact Poli 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 I have a problem with, for example, <laughs> because PolitiFact, um, I was on, on this week with Liz Cheney and, um, at the round table, and um, I brought up Halliburton, which uh, reappeared from the grave, we thought, um, in the BP spill, because they were the ones who failed to seal properly the well, just to remind you. And I said, you know, you know, Halliburton, I said, after it had defrauded the taxpayers of millions of dollars in Iraq, reappears again at the BP, and Liz Cheney says, what planet are you living on? What are you talking about? And of course, you know, there's chapter and verse of them being fined, of them overcharging in Iraq, etc., etc. So PolitiFact checked it and gave me a half-true thing because of the word defrauded. But in fact, what else do you call when in the middle of war a company basically overcharges again and again the American taxpayer, the government. And their argument was it could have been waste and inefficiency. It's like, you know, all these hundreds of millions of dollars may have been missing, tucked between the cushions in the sofa. You know, it's like, what? so that's, you know, that, that's when you get, that's when you get this, kind of, this kind of pretense of objectivity. Let me, let me bring up... I want to say one more thing here, because <laughs> it really, it affects everything. It's this, like, double standard. It's why we have no accountability. It's why corporations can basically be fined, as AIG was before we had to bail it out, $1.6 billion, but not have to admit wrongdoing. That's where legal technicalities get in the way, and that's where I think new media can demand a higher standard. So let me uh, bring up this uh, line of uh, discussion, brings up the increasing polarization of the media or politicization of the media that uh, as we go to websites, yours is people tend to think it's a little bit more on the uh, left or liberal, or and we've talked that those, those labels don't apply so much. Drudge, you know, and more and more CSNBC and the uh, is more on the liberal and um, Fox News is liberal. Uh, no, uh, but but um, you know, where are we? We know what he meant. No, I'm kidding. We know. Um, so where uh, what is happening with journalism, and does social media have any impact on that? The the idea that people want to see what they like, they want to uh, oh, believe I mean, what they want to believe. Social media is a truth serum for the media. It is. You can't deny that. If, you, if, you, if something fundamentally wrong is out there, people will say it and they will say it in large numbers. And, you know, there will be different contending factions of voices, but you have a whole set of voices that didn't exist before, and that can't be anything but good, in my opinion. Overall. So will that lead, in, in, therefore, to a more centralist media? Because Everything that is uh, out there is, you know, being verified. Well, you know, it's, or checked it's weird because uh, I was somebody. Media. I was I was one of these like self-identified left-wing people who was stuck in the old media for years, and you know, as so many journalists, we all you know, the liberal pre uh, stereotype is probably right of many old-school media people. But I always used to feel what a tragedy that the U.S., unlike every country in Europe 
doesn't have any real national progressive publication, right? I mean, in fact, Ariana tried to create one in, in, a, in a sense, and I think you've done a decent job of it. Others have tried to do it, but for so That's long... Yeah, yeah. The weird thing is, for so long, U.S. media was very monolithic and quite white bread. It was all pretty much the same set of messages coming from a variety of supposedly diverse voices. Now we've kind of gone to a very extreme alternative to that, which is these very, very factionalized voices that you were just describing. And, and I, I think probably we will get more towards a convergence. So, okay, and we're, we want to get the audience so the, the people with the microphone is going to have to get to the people raising their hands because I can't see them very well. Okay. Uh, I am sorry. I'm Mary Houston, and I'm just feeling uh, Mary Houston speaking. Sorry, Mary Houston speaking, and I'm just thinking the elephant in the room here is, uh, strangely enough, having uh, a 23-year-old and a 17-year-old uh, comedy, and I think that Jonathan Stewart and Stephen Colbert have certainly. Um, changed the world and I don't hear anybody talking about comedy and it's a you know it's a dichotomy it's it's very I mean we've had so many serious issues in our generation I mean more serious than well since World War II um, we're in very bad shape and yet comedy it you know it really has taught our next generation the news and that's really where my son is not getting his news from Facebook, and he's not getting his news from uh, Huffington Post. I'm, I, I wish he, or the New York Times, or the NPR, Times and I am on all those radars. Do you, but do you I find wish this, he was. Do you find this different from political cartoons, basically, throughout journalistic? Uh, well, I, what I'm interested in is what the panel thinks. Because okay, can I just say that Charlie's a really smart guy? Can I just say he's got a lot of thoughts about this? Uh, but can I just say something about John Stewart? Charlie, you ask the uh, questions, you don't answer. Them. I know. I didn't answer. I was asking her. Right. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly how this fits exactly with social media, but let me just say something about John Stewart because I'm an avid uh, viewer myself. Yes, he's funny. Yes, he's entertaining. I love John Stewart. I'm completely devoted to watching the show. But there's two things about John Stewart you, to, to be aware of, and two things, and they have absolutely nothing to do with comedy whatsoever. Number one, he is a brilliant, brilliant interviewer. The best. Yes, he's he the best is. On television. Forget about comedy. Yes, he has his little funny lines, but he's a brilliant interview. And second of all, his producers and his editors have established. A, a, a new high watermark that all news organizations, by the way, should follow in terms of research in, in archival material. A lot of what is so brilliant about Jon Stewart is when you see the juxtaposition, and yes, it's funny and they play it for laughs and that's fantastic, but the fact is, this is serious business. They do tape research like nobody's business and all main, so-called mainstream media all legitimate uh, journalism should follow their lead in what they've been able to do with their research. Oh, in fact, that is absolutely true. And in fact, they demonstrate something else, both John Stewart and Colbert, which is that new journalism increasingly is beyond left and right. 
So I think this polarization and this insistence of mainstream media to look at everything that's happening through this filter of left versus right is completely obsolete, completely distorting, and it makes, makes it much harder for us to find solutions to our problems. Now, John Stewart and Colbert take on everybody. And that's our goal at the Huffington Post. We take on everybody. It's not, it's not, we're not protecting anybody. We're not there to cheerlead any particular group or individual. And that means that if you take the big issues of our time, let's take Afghanistan, which is something that we are covering minutely. When, say, George Will comes out against escalation in Afghanistan, we have a splash on the Huffington Post beyond left and right. We regularly work with the Cato Institute who are doing, that are doing amazingly re amazing research about what's happening in Afghanistan. And yet the mainstream media insists on looking at Afghanistan as a left-right issue, when it clearly is not. So that's really one of the other things that we can transcend with new media. Hi, Lou Peoples from uh, Lake Tahoe. And the question I have is for all of us that are consumers of all this new uh, information, facts coming at us, how do we turn that into intelligence? So this goes again to the news literacy. So uh, Vivian, do you want to... Yeah, well, I think, uh, first of all, it has a lot to do with editing. You know, there are, you know, to, if, it, for those of us that, 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 that create and, and, and pride ourselves on legitimate news to, to both independent, when I say legitimate, that's, that's a bad word. I should say independent, fact-based, verified news and information. It is, you know, we, uh, you know, we pride ourselves in our editing and it, and it is incumbent upon us to market ourselves and to expand our reach through social media to, um, to, to, to tell our story. And in fact, engaging our audience is part of the way that we do that. That's why social media is so important. I can tell you, new, I can give you chapter and verse of news stories where in our comment stream, um, members of our audience who have commented on specific stories have enhanced and have revealed information that we incorporate into our, into our news gathering and reporting. Let me just mention one other thing, which is the Public Insight Network that yeah. uh, Minnesota Public Radio is... They've gotten 100,000 uh, people who are, have some expertise in various fields, and they go out on any issue, and they poll them, and they try to get intelligence out of that. It's kind of yeah. it is crowdsourcing a, intelligence. Exactly, well. and let me just tell one quick anecdote, which I'll try to do in 60 seconds or less, which to me reveals sort of the power of social media, although it's a little bit of a silly story. So about 10, 8, 10 months ago, you might remember the Balloon Boy story. Right? It was captured national attention, and it was all over cable TV, and it's not particularly an NPR kind of story, but we have a news blog called The Two-Way on NPR.org, and so we reported, look, this is happening, and guess what? You know, everybody around you that's got a television in front of them is tuning in to see what happened. And a fascinating thing happened as a phenomenon of that little blurb on our Two-Way blog. The comment stream, which we use real names. I don't know who they are specifically, but we make people use real names is it was one after another after another. There was this sort of crowdsourcing exercise among a series of our commenters who were doing the calculus. The first comment was, let's state, was, was stating that the 
the, the, what, what they assumed would be the thickness of the mylar, the weight of the helium, the, the altitude, uh, you know, where the, where the balloon was allegedly lifting. And then another one said, well, you know, let me check your math. And I think that the density of the air and the, and the lift and the weight of a nine-year-old boy, and they're going back and forth. And then they start arguing with each other. And, you know, in, in, in sort of the geek speak of sort of flaming each other, one of them says to the other as a, you know, as this provoc- provocation, show your math, which, you know, was... <laughs> The ultimate insult. The ultimate insult. But, uh, but at the end of this string of comments, these, these people calculated on our common street, they calculated that that balloon could not have held that boy before the balloon even landed. Now, that's a, maybe a silly story, and it turned out to be, as you know, just a ridiculous hoax. But you think about the power of that kind of um, collaboration on news and information and what that can really mean when we really unleash it and we understand its full potential, and it's extremely powerful and exciting. I think it's absolutely an amazing story, and it says a lot because um, uh, mainstream media could not give up that story, even after it was clear that there was no boy in the balloon. <laughs> but it's too good You to had check. them sort of agonizing about the fate of the boy. And <laughs> And I, in fact, I thought for a minute that maybe if we had constructed a giant balloon and pretended that we're putting in it the 1.5 million kids that are homeless in this country, we might solicit a modicum of the same kind of concern that anchors kept displaying. Is the, ba- is the boy cold? You know, I wonder, I wonder how cold it is up there. And all that <laughs> stuff that, we, that, w- that was going on endlessly. But, but just to back to your question... You said, how do we generate more intelligence? I think what we are missing in this country is not intelligence, but wisdom. And I think in order to generate more wisdom, we need to sort of learn to disconnect from all our connectivity and connect with ourselves. And that's something that actually we are trying to do through our living section on the Huffington Post. For example, we've become big champions of sleep. I don't know how many of you here are sleep deprived. We, I mean, Vivian and I are joking yes, about it. Yes, we've talked about we this a lot. <laughs> but we launched uh, a campaign, actually. The editor of Glamour and I started blogging at the beginning of the year about how much sleep we were getting, and we made a resolution that I would get eight hours, she would get seven and a half. And we blogged about the pitfalls when we fell off the wagon. The point of this, <laughs> though, is larger, because we clearly have an enormous amount of sleep-deprived, exhausted, and disconnected leaders at the moment both at the political level and at the corporate level. I think if Lehman Brothers, for example, were getting a little more sleep, they might still be around. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna, I'm, I want to try to get a, uh, at least two, maybe three more comments. So, Hi, I'm Mary Graham. I direct a transparency project at Harvard University. So this is on the question of trust. An interesting thing is happening in the UK. There's something called the Media Standards Trust that's been formed that tries to give users a simple icon digest the ethics that Vivian's talked about in news literacy, independence, verification, and accountability. It's a somewhat longer list over there. And just gives people a signal of what they're looking at. Are they looking at, you know, you could have four or five different icons. They'd have to be consensus. People would have to agree that it was an objective organization. It's sort of a major update of the good housekeeping seal of approval. I'm just wondering whether all of you think that that would distort things or would be a good thing? Do you see it happening? Could a group of you, as has happened in in other countries, come together 
and form your own and sense of ethics and your own icons. And can I just get a clarification of who it is who's putting that imprimatur? This on is something called the Media Standards Trust. I mean, that who is, are they? is is independent. Um, uh, I can tell you, it, Albert Scardino, who used to be editor uh, of the Guardian, is one of the people behind okay. it. So it's independent, uh, uh, respected, blue ribbon type panel. Right. So what do we think? I think it's kind of scary myself. Um, because I think it's sort of <clears throat> vaguely antithetical to speech. And as someone who's, I spent my whole career in entertainment, I have ratings boards for everything I do. And they're supposed to be the same thing. And really, it came from a good place, right? Giving parents some guidance as to what would be appropriate for their kids and giving consumers guidance. And I don't, I'm trying to think. Apart from sort of movies that involved um, horses and dogs and um, sunshine, I don't think I've ever put out a television show, motion picture, uh, some music, some record albums, certainly not a video game, without the creators, the creative people, feeling like the ratings board was being unfair or biased. And it seems sort of um, risky in terms of, of, of that from my point of view. You know, I want to just, because this is a really you know, key topic, just a couple points. You know, Vivian, your point on, on the blogger, I think you're leaving out one important fact, which is, People who are blogging on NPR are really smart, by and large. No, I mean, and I, I mean they're really smart. But the truth is, you know, the Twitter feeds that I follow are literally like seventeen beers. I'm still standing. I'm, you know, it's, you know, um, you know, and uh, so, you know, I don't. And I clearly following the wrong people. But I, I, th I think the. I think one of the things we have, we can't, and again, look at the people on this panel who have spent their careers being professional writers and editors, and actually, and I don't mean that in a, I mean that in a really positive way, and the fact that the New York Times can no longer be the same standard bearer it was, and it really was and remains an extraordinary standard bearer, doesn't eliminate the need for standard bearers, and I don't think anyone here would want to read the three million comments that you get, and I know for a fact that you take great pains to edit that stuff down and curate it and make it good, as does Tina at the Daily Beast. She, you know, talks about curation. So I think the key point here is we're talking, you're, you're, you're working on a transparency project at Harvard University, and, like, that is just not what Twitter is currently about. It just isn't, and it's not what most, most social media is about. And I, I just want, as someone who spends his time not in journalism but in marketing broad-based entertainment products, right? The, the, the stuff that actually drives the media entertainment business. I will tell you, it has never been easier for me to market, and I'm using the worst words you could use in market. It's never been easier or cheaper for me to market. How many of you saw the movie Wag the Dog? It is easier to wag the dog today than it was 20 years ago. Way, way, way easier. You mean to be deceptive, you're saying? I mean to be deceptive. Yes, I do. Because you're dealing, you don't have the same level of independent journalistic quality. You don't have those your friends, and my friends are now unemployed. They're not out there digging. Yes, there's some wonderful projects going on, but they're scratching the surface. And David Benaham has a great project going on, but they're still scratching the surface. And the truth is, from, it's a marketer's dream. It's a delight. We just put out a, 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 a great video game. It's phenomenal, by the way. I recommend you buy it called Red Dead Redemption. You've never, you'd never heard of Red Dead Redemption six months ago. 
I can't even, I mean, I can't tell you what a phenomenon it's become. It's been driven by social media. For someone who had to buy, you know, I used to have to buy double truck ads in the New York Times for 150 grand. I was, huh, I'm done with that. I'm spending, but, well, as I said, there's a thin line between marketing and but, manipulation. But I'm on the good side of the line. But the point I'm, I'm but can we move for that, sure. But can the, we move that to positive things for journalism? Yeah, for, I, think for there is, journalism? I think there is a positive thing, and I think the positive thing requires people like you all to be to tightly curate. But you know, yeah. Charles, I think you underestimate the intelligence and the judgment of most American, the American audience. I mean, the fact is, no, no. Ooh, this is scary. Wow. No, I mean, I, I really. Okay, all right, hold on. I understand that there's a lot of not so smart people out there, but I will. I mean, I'll point to evidence the fact that. I mean, 30, you, you say that we do quality information at NPR. Thank you very much. We are audience. And we have a smart audience. And we have a smart audience. But you know what? There's over 35 million of them. Our audience is over 35 million people on all, plat- all, on, on all platforms. That is not... 35 million unduplicated? Undup- un- yeah. un- yeah. 35 million unduplicated. That is not some but I, kind I wasn't of niche elite. I was not arguing people are dumb at all. I, don't, I happen not to believe that. I was arguing that social media gives marketers an opportunity to manipulate in a way that they never had before. And I, I would like to... social media that's enabling that Well, I'm not going to give out all my no. trade secrets right here, but I, it's, <laughs> well, no, it's but pretty remarkable. Because social media. it used to cost a whole lot, David, because the way I marketed a motion picture 15 years ago, I had to spend 25 million bucks to buy network television, outdoor, and the New York Times. And today I can spend 2 million bucks judiciously on Facebook, yeah, and I right. can do remarkable things, remarkable things. But I think and again, I think I'm, I really do think... If you have a really lousy product, you probably can't do as I'm not talking about a lousy things. product, because actually right. it's a great that's, product. I'm well, talking, that's, that's I'm talking I'm about that's the ability... That's social media in action. I'm talking about They're the, reinforcing a positive... Oh, no, product. I'm a force for good. I'm talking about the forces... <laughs> I'm talking about the forces for evil. But, but the forces <laughs> for evil, you know, it's really to go back to what Charlie said about Atlantic City and the Atlantic, because the forces for evil have always been there. Father Coughlin didn't... It's just cheaper for them. No, no, no. Father Coughlin didn't need social media to manipulate emotion. He used the radio. I think you're forgetting what happened in the 30s. You're forgetting what happened when this country was deporting American citizens of Hispanic descent before FDR. When and interning there is a, Japanese. Yeah, but, when there and is Father Coughlin's a great example, but I would argue it's easier to be Father Coughlin today that, than that. I don't believe that for one but, second. Oh, I, I think, think it is. I think in times of economic anxiety, there's going to be scapegoating. And people would use whatever. They would use newspapers, radio, billboards, social media, whatever it is. And there are many people being fooled. There are many people, millions of them, who believe... Barack Obama wasn't born in this country. I, think, I don't think there would have been any fewer if social media did not exist. It's a complete illusion about the past. Okay, we're going to have to uh, call quits because we have a... a well, it's n- I know, it's just getting started. But there is the a performance coming up. NPR and the Huffington Post. <laughs> There's a Beatlemania performance coming up at 9 o'clock. So if you, uh, you want to go out and re-enter to the nightclub, that would be uh, fine. Uh, Maybe one last uh, summing up uh, point about your (laughs) prospects for journalism going forward. Um, You have, I've I've heard generally a very bright, uh, optimistic attitude by most of the people on the panel uh, in terms of journalism. Um, And certainly that social media is here, that it's not a uh, bifurcation of old and new media, that it's, it's all now part of the fabric. 
Um, do you have any last can kind of know, concluding I think all three statement. of we journalists are kind of glass half full kind of people right. when we look at this subject, and I think there's a good cause to think that quality information is proliferating that's allowing us to make good decisions about all the things around us, and it could always be better, but it is not a tragedy to what situation we're living in now at all. I think it's kind of a, a great world of vital information in, uh, sources. By the way, this is an astounding moment to have three journalists who are glass half, half full, I might <laughs> add. <laughs> well, it, but it, it's not exactly for journalism <laughs> in the classic sense. We're, not, yeah. we're talking about information. Right, for information. I, I completely agree. I think that this just gives us, you know, in, in, in sort of response to some of the things you were saying, Strauss, I think David had it right, which is the ability for all of the, for the audience to engage and be perpetually fact-checking us is good for journalism and good for information and good for democracy. I think the other thing it's good for is good for empathy. And our country des and the world desperately need more empathy, more people giving back, more people thinking beyond themselves. And all this connectivity is also encouraging empathy. And you see that happening. I mean, if you go online and you see what people are creating, unemployed people creating We've Got Time to Help, the Bounce Back Project, um, a site I highly recommend called See, Click, Fix, where people can report what's happening in their neighborhoods and then they can go fix it. It's just an extraordinary amount of creativity that social media are generating. And, and I, I feel more than glass half full. I think it's three quarters full. <laughs> No, I think it's an exciting time. I, I guess I'd probably leave it with, you know, be, beware misinformation and beware manipulation. Great. Let's have a round of applause for our panel. <laughs> Thank you for coming and for being a part of it. Right?